Hello. I'm back. The podcast is back. It's been a while, um, but finally, um, I'm back with episode number 83 of Creative Chit Chat. I'm Ryan McLeod, and thank you for listening. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about this earlier but I, I mean i don't really know what series or season or whatever this is i've kind of i seem to have pretty much given up on that so it's episode 83 and whatever series you like um yeah let's not bother with all that anyway so yeah, i'm back with a bumper run of uh episodes this time after a bit of a break and this week's guest is kirsty thomas um, who runs tom pigeon and we go all the way back into the, the sort of start of that from Lovely Pigeon into the incarnation of Tom Pigeon and some of the amazing things that's happened along the way um, and dive into this sort of cycle um, in this that Kirsty talks about, these sort of um, points in time which she decides that she needs a change um, and she needs to move on. Uh, which is really interesting and I think it's, it's something that I can definitely relate to and I think a lot of people can, it just, that time scale might be a bit different, it might be a year, it might be two years, maybe six months, it just, um, I think it's a natural thing, human thing to want change um, and if things have stayed the same for quite a long time then you just want something fresh, something new and that doesn't have to be massive, it just has to be something that keeps you excited and fulfilled. Um, yeah, and for, for Kirsty, um the, the sort of latest massive project for her um, has been the Make Bank, um, which launched at this year's Dundee Design Festival. We were really privileged to have it there um, and do the official launch. Um, if you haven't heard of it, it's it's all about providing materials for um, students who uh, students and school kids who just can't afford the basic materials to do subjects, creative subjects like art and design. Um, and the Make Bank is trying to provide um, provide materials and bridge this sort of creative poverty gap that, that is, is arising and is meaning that there's a lot of potential great creatives out there who just aren't able to get into the industry or kickstart that career or make that first step on the ladder by um, getting grades in certain subjects like art and design or creating a portfolio to get themselves to art school um, and it's just th- through lack of funding um, and so the Make Bank offers these packs so there's a series of different packs um, and you can pay it forward essentially or donate a pack um, and they will distribute that to the the children across the UK that are most in need um, and there's also other parts of that as well so they're also um, they've got this amazing range of prints from designers I mean phenomenal designers all across the UK and beyond um, who have donated their work to be sold and all the profits then go back into again providing materials um, and then yeah so I think there's loads of stuff going on and beyond that they're, they're talking about capturing um, all the stories and journeys um, from existing creatives to sort of give that insight into young creatives um, into how to get into the industry and the fact that, that there is no set way and I think I mean I mean there are a lot of similarities and commonalities between um, what I'm trying to do with the podcast and what the Make Bank is doing in, in terms of capturing those stories and those insights um, 
which is great. Um, but obviously, we're very Dundee focused, whereas those guys will be looking much more, much more broadly. So yeah, I'm looking forward to to that content coming out. But if if you are in a position to help, um, if you go to the makebank.org.uk, um, you can pay it forward, or you can donate um, a pack there to help young creatives um, all over the UK. Um, yeah, um, before we get into the episode, just one little thing I want to mention. So, um, obviously, I said I've got a bumper run of episodes um, with amazing guests. So, t- to give you a bit of a, a sneak peek into who that is, um, we've got Jamie Steen, who's a graphic designer, graduated last year, um, has decided to stay in Dundee, which is uh, phenomenal. And I think it's something that we need to aspire to doing more and attracting more talent that comes at the art school to, to stay. And so, I thought it was really nice to get his journey and his opinion and how he got to where he did um, through a lot of ups and downs and a lot of um, actually negative experiences in the creative industries. Um, but he, he has perf- persevered and is now in a much better place. Um, so uh, that one will be coming out next week. And then we've also got Catherine Rattray, uh, who's a photographer. And then uh, we've also got Stuart Murdoch, who is head of Legend Culture Dundee. So yeah, three amazing big episodes coming out in the next three weeks. Um, and then after that, I've got something special coming with Creative Dundee, which I will leave um, as a little bit of a mystery. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to be unveiling it in a couple of weeks or so. Anyway, let's get into the episode. So this is number 83, and this is with Kirsty Thomas. So I guess... I guess my journey is quite interesting from a school level in as much as I had quite a traditional education and followed quite a traditional path. But um, when I left school, I went to study sports science as a degree rather than art. And I really loved art and sport at school and decided that there were more going to be more jobs in sport <laughs> for some reason. Um, but after a year of um sports science and hanging out with the rugby boys and all that I decided that it wasn't really for me anymore and I managed to talk my way onto a foundation course without a portfolio um yeah that was a long time ago quite a skill yeah (laughs) um and from there I then went and studied a design studies degree in Manchester which was very broad and kind of left me kind of feeling like I came out with no real skills for industry so we kind of studied a lot of um, contextual stuff and design history and um, like semiotics and things like that. Um, and I did a bit of fashion prediction and promotion, but not fashion design. So I couldn't cut a pattern. So I couldn't work in the fashion industry very easily. Um, we did a bit of graphics, but this was there was like three computers in the studio when I was at uni. <laughs> we used to use an Omnicrom machine. Have you ever come across an Omnicrom? No, it's a good name though. Brilliant name. It was. It's like a. Um, basically, you take a black and white photocopy or printout, and you get this foil, and you can you put it through a heat machine, and it foils the um, puts foil onto the black print. That's what I used to do all my work in because <laughs> there was no color printers. <laughs> um, and so yes, I came out of uni feeling a little bit unemployable really I didn't really know where to to go next I didn't really feel like I had a set of skills I could take to industry and um, I got my first job in like in fashion and kind of managed to 
well, kind of, I, I get. So I was working, I worked in a, a Manchester like streetwear company called Joe Bloggs, who were very big at the time I do remember in Manchester Joe yeah, yeah. with like the Happy Mondays and stuff like that and Spiral mm. Carpets used to wear Joe Bloggs. <laughs> and I got a job there um, basically ripping off like Ralph Lauren polo shirts. <laughs> Which is not an inspiring job. So, I, I mean, I'm always interested in this. And I, I'd love to get people who do that for a living. So, like, your job as, like, designers who work for supermarkets, say. Yeah. And things like that. And chat to someone about how you rip something off without ripping something off. Yeah. Or, like, without working within the legal parameters of yeah. what is different and what is allowable. I don't even know that we were working within the parameters, <laughs> to be honest. I used to work with this, like, so my direct boss was like the, the son of the family and his his line was kind of like this slightly more upmarket, less streetwear-y kind of thing. And he used to literally come in with like a pile of magazines or cutouts from magazines and say, I want that one, I want that one, I want that one. And then I would just, I would draw them up on like in like Illustrator um, for the manufacturers with like, you know, like what kind of, um, you know, what stripe was on the collar of what shirt <laughs> and off they went. <laughs> and it was, it was a terrible job, it was like totally soul destroying. Um, and I think I lasted about maybe a year um, and then managed to get a job in kind of, well, kind of fashion retail, but I was doing a lot of marketing for a company that, um, at the time, they ran um, Hooch and Bench, which I think Bench is like a streetwear kind of label now. But um, they were opening like a quite a cool um, lifestyle fashion store in Liverpool. And they wanted somebody to do a lot of the promotionally graphics-y kind of stuff. Managed to convince them that I could do that. <laughs> and so I worked there for a while, um, did a lot of fashion um, merchandising, um, sales on the floor, kind of got to know that industry a little bit, went to a lot of shows and then set up my own company. So I set up my own streetwear company with a pal of mine who could cut a pattern. Um, and um, yeah, so we just, we ended up kind of running this company called Post for about five years where we were kind of doing printed t-shirts, um, you know, skirts, bags, that kind of thing. Uh, managed over that period of time to get, kind of work with lots of independent retailers and managed to get like a concession in Topshop for a while which was nice um, and then I kind of just got a little bit bored there's a theme here I get bored quite quickly <laughs> um, and I went and retrained as a teacher so I what was the motivation to do that then probably the same motivation that I'm now experiencing with the make bank actually in that kind of like the fashion industry is horrible you know it's just it's full of horrible people it's quite a bad like toxic environment to work in it might not be the same now but I suspect it probably is um and I just I just didn't sit right with my morals and like where I wanted my life to be and so I kind of I think I've always kind of I've always worked with kids like when I was at school I used to work in play schemes and things like that so I think I always felt that there was a need to give back a little bit without sounding cheesy um and yeah, so I decided that I would kind of retrain as an art teacher and went and did my PGC and ended up teaching for 10 years. So I worked in special education for seven years, teaching kids with autism. And then I we moved up to Scotland and I worked in the school in St Andrews, um, like at Madras, as a, as a secondary art and design teacher. 
and then I got bored again. <laughs> <laughs> is there like a a, a pattern, like a, a an amount of time um, the boredom inside like happens? It's probably a, like a seven year itch thing, to be honest. And it's funny because Pete and I have always um, we've always kind of had those kind of like periods where he would be earning more money than me and then I would kind of retrain or do something else or start something up and then I would build that up and I'd be earning money and then he would drop out and do something like that and I think we've we've worked like that since we've met each other I mean we've yeah I mean we met at uni on foundation so like 20 odd years of like that kind of just like swings and roundabouts of kind of shifting our goals all the time. I think that's I mean from having spoken to quite a lot of people now that having that maybe not quite that the balance that switches yeah so consistently but having that that support especially if you're you're sort of starting your creative career or yeah. moving into a different a whole other area to start something more creative that having that support and that knowledge that that your basic needs could be met so that if you if you couldn't pay the rent one month because yeah. you didn't have anything coming in, then your partner could, could yeah. support you and do yeah, that. Totally. And that, I mean, that can be a massive factor in allowing people to actually go for it. Yeah. And, and have that safety net. Of, yeah, of definitely. You know, I think you can, you do definitely need that support. And I think because we're both creatives, we've kind of both just taken it in turns to support the other person while we swapped what we were doing or, you know, or changed things or, you know, set up a company or, you know, went into teaching or whatever. So, yeah, I think there is a, there is definitely, a, you'd, I mean, we couldn't have done it if we weren't in that situation. Um, and I think that also in terms of like creativity, I think, I think most creators are always kind of looking at other options and other things to kind of get involved in because it's quite difficult, I think, as a creative to kind of watch something from afar and not want to get involved in some ways, you know, like kind of, like you were talking about earlier with like, um, you know, the, the projects that you're working on, it's like you don't have to do those projects, but you know that there's a need to get involved in the local community or there's a need to get involved in a project. So, yeah, I think I've always just been a little bit like that. And how do you feel like you're, so between you and Pete, both being creative and working in like similar, I mean, yeah. same fields a lot yeah, of the time yeah. in similar fields, um, how do your creative processes differ? <laughs> hugely <laughs> I am quite disorganized in my like creative pro approach I think I'm the arty one <laughs> <laughs> and Pete is super strategic and super organized and um kind of needs everything to be in place and and I'm not like you know he needs he needs that kind of this is how it will work and this will be the result and I'm very much like let's just do this and see what happens so yeah, like hugely. And I think that in terms of like when, when we started Tom Pigeon, that was a <clears throat> like a perfect um, kind of match because he could kind of push the strategy and push the, the need for us to be making X amount of money and, you know, how do we grow the business and how do we, you know, take on staff or whatever. Whereas I'd be like, oh, I'll just make this nice print. <laughs> <laughs> but then it'll sell lots of, you know, so it's like, you know, there's a kind of, there's a, there's a good balance, I think. But we are very different in the way we approach things. I think that um, having come off the back of Design Festival, I think there's there's definitely similarities in that between me and Lyle. Yeah. Um, I was very much the, the structured, yeah. like, logistical 
person in that and Lyle was doing the other more potentially more creative stuff but those things have to work together in order to get the end result they do they do and you have to make sure that you're both getting out of that relationship what you want out of it you know because if it gets to a point where for example like if Pete really wanted to be the the arty creative one but his role has become the you know the strategic one does he then feel fulfilled enough and likewise do I kind of feel feel fulfilled enough in in just being the kind of you know kind of wacky creative one and not feeling like I'm driving the business so yeah it's yeah it's it's tricky it is tricky but I think you need that I think because creative businesses need both of those elements to be successful and to kind of push forward. Otherwise, you know, there are lots of there are a lot of creative businesses that fail because creatives are not naturally strategic or want to be dealing with like the figures and the projections and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I think I mean we'll probably get onto this a bit more later, but once you grow to a certain size, it's inevitable that those tasks, those roles exist. Yeah. And whether you're able to to give that control over to someone else or can afford to yeah. do that yeah. is um can be difficult, can yeah. be challenging. So Yeah, and that's exactly why Pete ended up coming into the business. It was because so when when I finished when I was teaching up in St Andrews, um I'd kind of started like a kind of my own kind of craft practice and had set up a company um and it was started out very much in a kind of like, you know, doing craft fairs, doing like occasional um, like workshops and things or selling to a few kind of independent design craft shops and stuff like that around Scotland. Um, and that business started to grow quite quickly. And we ended up working with like places like the Tate and the V&A whilst I was still Lovely Pigeon rather than Tom Pigeon. And it got to the point where I was I was having to do all of that strategy or or not even not doing the strategy I was just trying you know I was just firefighting this kind of like I've got to make 200 pairs of earrings kind of thing um and there was no way to kind of to control the strategic side of it because I just I, I didn't have the time and so that was at the point where we kind of said well you know we should just join forces I either need to take somebody on to help me do that or we bite the bullet and you know Pete and I work together and you know, he he kind of forms part of that kind of more strategic but creative kind of side of the business. And at, at that point, that's when Tom Pigeon became a thing when yeah. you guys joined together. Yeah, um, yeah. And, I mean, the name is always... <laughs> I think people have probably asked you quite a lot about where it comes from and, and <laughs> yeah. what happens. And, um, having a, a, a sort of... I suppose it's like a male f- fictional figurehead of, of the pseudonym. business. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a very totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it, well, so, yeah, so so when I started the business, like, when I started Lovely Pigeon, that was very much of an era of kind of craft businesses and things being a bit kooky and that kind of thing. And so Lovely Pigeon came from a nickname that somebody called me once that kind of stuck for a bit. I was like, well, that sounds like a good business name. And then when we rebranded, I'd already kind of, because I'd kind of established these um, relationships with things like Tate and things, we didn't really want to lose the whole, we didn't want to lose the pigeon, basically. <laughs> um, and so we were kind of racking our brains about how do, how do we push that forward? Do you just become pigeon? You know, that's difficult to get the name, for, like the, the, the domain names and stuff for. And because Thomas is our second name, it became, yeah, he became our pseudonym. 
yeah but it is weird and I do have to explain it a lot um but I do think it's quite nice in a way because it means that you can kind of you can make design decisions under this pseudonym and if they don't go right you don't really have to take any blame for them <laughs> yeah it was Tom <laughs> yeah it's Tom's fault he did it <laughs> totally I use that quite a lot <laughs> So from, obviously you, you talked about doing jewellery and, and other work with the tape be- beforehand, but yeah. I kind of want to know how the, the the product offering of Tom Pigeon had like evolved from Lovely Pigeon into Tom Pigeon and how that has developed over, over time. Yeah. Um, so I guess when we swapped over, we kind of had to change like the mentality of what we were doing. So it was, it became much less of a craft business and more of a design studio um, because we wanted to well we wanted to present like work that was a little bit more polished a little bit kind of harder edged more graphic um kind of a, i guess less girly you know so it became like a much more kind of hard edge isn't the right word but you know kind of more minimal less flouncy kind of stuff and um but we were also very aware that we didn't want to limit ourselves to what we were designing we wanted to create stuff that we wanted to live with so, you know, the prints that we'd hang on our walls, the jewellery that we'd wear, the cushions that we might, you know, use, you know, things that we'd have in our house. Um, and because both of us, I mean, me particularly, was I am kind of like very multidisciplinary in the way that I work. You know, I've never, you know, through university, never kind of felt like I had a set of skills. Um, it just kind of made sense for it to kind of be open and not for us to kind of feel that we had to be a print studio or a jewellery studio. And, you know, and then I guess there's that kind of degree of then trying to find out how you link all that together aesthetically, you know, because that is quite... It's, it's, it's unusual that a studio is kind of putting out that kind of breadth of work, um, I guess. So it's, yeah, that, that makes that's made it a little bit trickier, I guess, as a sell, but equally seems to have been quite successful i'd say so yeah <laughs> um i mean you you very much i mean at now and i mean probably for quite a while i've had a very distinctive style so that a recognizable tom pigeon style that if you saw one across the room you would recognize that 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 print or, or that notebook or, or, or yeah. whatever that piece is yeah is a tom pigeon or even like you see other pieces and you think, oh, that feels like a, <laughs> a bit like a Tom, Tom Pigeon. But when, so when did that style, like when do you feel that that style came about and when you felt comfortable in that in that style? Probably started to emerge at the end of when I was kind of still running the craft business and before we turned over to Tom Pigeon, I'd started to kind of design much more geometric kind of stuff. And that was partially a result of trying to, to streamline the production process so like you know kind of producing certain things in multiples so previously i was doing like lino prints and things like that um which are obviously quite time consuming and you can print in multiples obviously but it's very much a craft process and and as i started to move um to kind of screen prints and things started to kind of look at how how production would work um and i guess look at that kind of batch production method um and so that I guess in a way kind of informed some of our aesthetic decisions, but not, yeah, I mean, I guess it, yeah, I guess it started to kind of emerge this kind of more geometric minimal kind of thing started to emerge 
in that lovely pigeon stage and that was when we kind of got some of the, our bigger clients and started to kind of get a bit of press and stuff like that and so it came from it came from that and then I guess just trying to I don't know I don't really feel like I'm I'm it's difficult. I don't really feel like I'm like hugely tied to a specific aesthetic. And I know that like people do recognise the work as like Tom Pigeon print or whatever. Um, you know, we do work with geometry, we work with colour, you know, we work you know, I'm I'm very into colour theory and how colour balances and all that kind of stuff. So I guess that informs a lot of my work. Um and about simplicity and, you know, keeping things, you know, as kind of as paired back as possible. Um but it's funny that that's emerged from like something where I was like, you know, initially like sewing vintage buttons onto bits of felt. <laughs> it's quite, it's quite a, it's quite a like, yeah, it's quite a journey, I suppose, mm. aesthetically. Yeah, um, I know. I mean, you've talked before about the the sort of the influence of your surroundings um, and being in the, the sort of East Nuke of, yeah. of Fife. And I, I mean, I, I take it that was a, a very conscious decision to to sort of move and set up there. Well, we moved up from Liverpool um, about 13 years ago. So I moved up for teaching. Um, but I definitely think that we wouldn't have achieved what we had done if we were still living in the city. I think that it's given us the opportunity to experiment on a much lower cost than we would have been if we were still in Liverpool or if we were in London or whatever. Um, and yeah, it has, like, it does inform aesthetically inform what I do which is maybe not directly obvious in the work you know because it is very graphic but I think like as a I don't know as a creative person I'm always just looking at you know like harbour walls like the structure of the geometry of a harbour wall I think is really fascinating and I can see how that can translate to a print or to you know to form um graphically um you know and things like even Sounds I don't know. It sounds a bit trite, but like th- you know, like the colours of like sunsets and things. Genuinely, I, you know, like that kind of pink is one of the colours that runs through all of our work. And I don't doubt that that has come from that love of watching the sunset over the sea. <laughs> How romantic! <laughs> <laughs> but that's so. I mean, this this sort of the minimal geometric style. Um, to go back to your like your process. Um, I mean, I personally always find it difficult when working in like a sort of minimal way to define, like to have confidence in a like a composition or a layout or, or whatever when it is very minimal. Yeah. So, I mean, in your process, how do you know when you're finished? Yeah, that's really tricky. Like quite often, I think in my process, I start with like the bones of an idea or, you know, like it might be like, like say like, the harbour walls or something like that and and they usually start out as much busier more complicated compositions um and then i make quite a conscious effort to then peel away layers of you know does it need that texture does it need that line there and kind of pulling it back i mean almost to the point where you couldn't actually take anything away or take anything more away you know um so, yeah, and I th- but I do. I think that's a confidence thing. I think that is just like a right. Okay, well, there are only three coloured shapes on this piece of paper. Is anyone going to buy it? But generally, they, they seem to kind of they seem to be in into that. And and you know, I kind of just 
yeah, I, I really like that process of like peeling away the layers until you just get this really nice balanced composition of colour and shape and white space. Um, and is that a digital process or is that an analogue type? Usually, uh, a bit of both really. It starts off usually kind of quite analogue. I do a lot of kind of sketching on graph paper and just of just like boxes of shapes <laughs> and, you know, and kind of just playing around with composition and how things might look. Um, and then, yeah, it pretty quickly moves into, like, I work in Illustrator mainly, so it pretty quickly kind of jumps into that. But then there might be kind of scenarios where I kind of hand draw shapes and then take them in and, you know, kind of add them into the composition and stuff as well. But it's quite digital, mm. like what I do. Um, and, and across all of it, like across the jewellery and stuff as well, I tend to design briefly on paper and then take it online. I just find it easier in terms of, Playing with composition, playing, changing sh- colours around, changing shapes around. It's just, it's quick, isn't it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so how do you, obviously the the, the product range um, that you've they've created and at points you've decided to move into to different like spaces and, and objects and, and things that you're creating. So how do you decide how that, I mean, is that very much like an organic process or is it just a ah, quite fancy just doing that or is it like actually well the market at the moment is sort of doing that maybe this would sell quite well or (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's very organic (laughs) I guess that I guess most of the stuff stems from print you know like that print would be my first love um and then how that translates into something like jewelry is quite straightforward um and then yeah and then there is just a degree of like I wonder what that would look like as a textile piece, you know. So then how do you work out what kind of textile piece that is? So I guess there's a kind of degree of um, just exploration and organically kind of thinking that, you know, I like the idea of kind of playing with texture and things like that. So, you know, looking at how a print is on paper compared to looking at how it is on textiles, like printed on linen or something, is interesting. And then I guess there is like a degree of strategy. Um because you know i would i would love to turn those things into like huge wall hangings but commercially that's not that straightforward you know that's a high price point item that our shops are probably not going to buy because it takes up tons of space you know and so that becomes then potentially that becomes like an art object or like a you know a really limited edition run or something and the textile piece becomes a cushion rather than a huge wall hanging because a cushion can be sold at a certain price point and there's profit to be made. <laughs> Sounds like a ruthless businesswoman now. But I mean, the, to make creative businesses work, you have to have that yeah. aspect yeah. to it. Yeah, and you know, and that's what Pete brought into the business initially was that kind of like real um, integrity in the way that we price and source like our, our work. Um, you know, so that there is room for the business to grow and to make sure that, um, you know, that the, the profit margins are there and, you know, that you are running as a business and it's not, you know, it's not a hobby anymore. Yeah, and there's got to be value to the, the process that you go through and the quality that, that you create. Yeah. That you're not... And again, I suppose it's about finding the right customer that appreciates that as well and yeah. that they're not they're going to get something far greater than a mass-produced object yeah but it's that appreciation that this is what I, I have and I want to own I suppose yeah yeah and that kind of you know that 
story that kind of goes behind a product and the craft that goes into a product. And, you know, like all our jewellery is made in-house, all our prints are printed in the UK, all our papers, British paper, you know, or, and, you know, recycled stock. And then there's a story about where the studio is and stuff like that. And, yeah, you know, I think in terms of that kind of creating a brand kind of thing, um, those kind of aspects are really important. Um, and that's what allows you to then work with great, independent retailers and like really nice design stores and gallery spaces and all that kind of stuff because you've kind of got a bit of I guess a bit of backbone behind this product which is you know ultimately just a few triangles and circles on a piece of paper (laughs) and anyone could be doing it but you know this it's it's a it's a bit it's bigger than just the 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 product isn't it yeah and is there obviously each product has a, a sort of life cycle um so how do you decide how do you decide when some when it's time for something to die? It's quite sales driven, probably. <laughs> I mean, okay, maybe is the question is: are there are there things that you have an an emotional attachment to that are in the range that you you don't want to die, but strategically they have to. Um, probably. <laughs> um, there are things like the Anstruther print has been in that collection since before we were Tom Pigeon. And it's kind of undergone various colour changes and the originals are still available and it's still one of our top selling prints. And that like I do have an emotional attachment to that print. So if it did start to like kind of fail, I would be sad to see it go. But there's no point in printing, you know, 100 screen prints and having them sitting in a drawer. So, you know, there are projects where we know we won't sell loads of something. So we might do it as a limited edition run. And then, you know, then that allows us just to kind of say goodbye to it once it's done um but loads of our prints and things like that are open edition so um it allows us to keep going with them if they're popular um yeah and you know aesthetically there are things in the collection that you know over the years because we've been going since 2014 that just fashionable is not the right word but they're just not you know they're kind of they, they don't feel like a tom pigeon product anymore so you know then you you let go of them and you move on and you know so yeah but we don't we don't get rid of products very often <laughs> i think actually i think sorry i think that that's one like that's quite important like i think with like jewelry in particular there's a real pressure within the industry to kind of create seasonal collections mm-hmm. and for this to be the you know that you every six months you've got a new collection out and we've never we we tried to do it and probably through my disorganisation, never really managed to kind of hit the the, the dates. Um, and I don't really feel that it's necessary. I kind of feel like, you know, if something's, if it's something's selling well and it sits really nicely within the collection, why would we get rid of it after six months? You know, if we like it, people like it. Um, it seems daft, you know, add to the collection, you know, make the collection more interesting and diverse by adding new pieces all the time. But I don't think it should be a case of like, well, that's that's been in the collection for a year. Get rid of it. Yeah, exactly. And it, I mean, I think it's it's down to creating pieces that are that have that longevity. Yeah, that and, yeah. are not trend driven. Yeah, um, and I think that's really important. As something that we've been talking a lot about in the studio recently is the um, you know the disposability of product and what we are really aiming to create is pieces that are not chucked away. Um, that people live with for a long time. Prints, you know, prints are easy to live with for a long time because you put them on your wall and you rarely change the artwork on your walls. But jewellery is difficult, you know. 
you know, people are used to that kind of H&M kind of disposable fashion kind of thing. And that's what we're not trying to create. You know, so if we have a you know piece of jewellery in the collection that's been there for five years because it sells really well, we probably know that those people are keeping that and not throwing it away. And, you know, there's a an integrity to it. Because, I mean, you talked about how you make all that, the, the jewellery in the house. Mm. But so how did you build the team around you, the, the, the Tom Pigeon team in, at the studio? Um, we, well, I guess we're really lucky because we've got a great jewellery course at DJ CAD. And so all, in fact, all of my employees are DJ CAD graduates. <laughs> um, and we kind of realised um, quite quickly into starting up Tom Pigeon that we couldn't physically handle the amount of jewellery that we had to make. Um, and so I actually just happened upon um, this amazing jeweller called Bethlemont, who has her own collection. Um, but um, she was looking for work and um, she came in and she start, helped us with one big commission that we'd had for a company. And we kept her. <laughs> Um, and and you know she she's amazing. She now runs the jewelry studio. Um, you know we've kind of trained her up over the kind of four years that she's been with us to um, you know to really understand our process and understand how the studio runs. And now she kind of she looks after the rest of the staff in the, in the workshop. And um, you know, brilliant. I mean, my team is amazing. I couldn't you know I couldn't run the business without them. And they are all super driven and super talented so yeah it's good you know, and it's you know that's that's quite difficult because you know, we, we do live in the middle of nowhere they all commute from either edinburgh or dundee so it takes a degree of commitment from from their part to come and work with us um you know and so i'm very aware that i want to make sure that i do everything that i can to keep them <laughs> you know i value them hugely So you, you touched on it earlier about the um, the collaborations. So even like way back, um, the lovely pigeon stage, you were working with some big big names like um, Tate, and obviously you've, you've sort of created collaborative collections with with lots of different um, sort of brands and online stores mm. and um, museums as well. So how how does that process work, and how do you? ensure that what you're creating through that process is true to, to what Tom Pigeon is? Um, so I think initially, it's, yeah, initially the um, the collaboration side of things came out of the fact that um, our first collection that we sold to the Tate um, then kind of catapulted us into a slightly different realm, I think, of kind of that gallery store, you know, quite high-end gallery store kind of work. And... I had then approached the Barbican and the Design Museum and stuff like that, and everybody was quite interested, remarkably. Um, but what we realised then was that we couldn't really have the same collection sitting across all of those stores in London, particularly, um, because then there was no level of exclusivity. Um, and so we started to chat with each of them about, you know, how do we make it bespoke to them? Um, you know, and that just might have been like a... A, like a tweak in a colourway, you know, that made it more relevant to their branding or whatever. Um, and then, so from there, we were really, really lucky. We'd kind of, en- I think we ended up in this position where we were kind of not a go-to, but we, we had great relationships with these different places. 
Um, and then as projects came up, or exhibitions that came up in those spaces, that I thought, oh, that looks like a good exhibition. I'd like to do something that was relevant to that. I was just dead cheeky and went and asked them, like, you know, I see you've got an Alexandra Calder exhibition. Could we design some jewellery for it? Or, um, you know, the Eames exhibition at the Barbican a few years ago. Um, like, I'm a massive mid-century fan. So, like, you know, there was a period where there's loads of amazing mid-century exhibitions and we managed to kind of somehow convince them that we should be working with them on those projects. Um so, 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 I, you know, like I feel very privileged to be in that position, first of all. Um, and then t- in terms of trying to keep the integrity of like a Tom Pigeon thing, when you're then trying to communicate something for a Charles and Ray Eames exhibition, it's, I guess it's a little bit about trying to kind of keep the aesthetic of what we are doing very strong within whatever project we're doing, but referencing in some way the ethos or the ideas or the visual aesthetic of that artist or whatever the exhibition might be and um, without it being a pastiche you know we don't want to create a set of jewelry for an alexander calder exhibition that just looks like we've ripped off his mobiles that's not what we're about it, ha- it can't be about that because that's well it's just naff <laughs> um yeah so there's just, you know there's been a lot of to and froing, lots of kind of discussions with like the the individual institutions about how you deal with that, but they're very open to that. I don't think they're interested in working with, you know, a pastiche of an artist's work. They're interested in promoting brands and British design and you know through their exhibitions. So um, it's tricky. It doesn't always work. Sometimes you get an exhibition thrown at you and you're like, there's no way that I can. I don't know how to reference that in a Tom Pigeon way. Um, one of the first collaborations that we did was with the V&A in London. Um, and I think we'd had some dealings with them previously, but we were, it was quite an initial conversation and they they had a constable exhibition on. So like, you know, 1800s art, <laughs> very traditional. And they wanted a Tom Pigeon interpretation of a constable painting. And I was like, oh my God, like what, where do you even start with that? And it's one of my favourite pieces of work that I, that's, it's not in the collection anymore, but... We just took a, um, a landscape or a seascape that he had done and reduced it down to three shapes. Um, and, you know, and, and yeah, so, yeah, it's difficult. And each project is different, you know. Um, some of them work, some of them less so. And, I mean, you sort of talked about the points where it doesn't work. Um, I mean, have you got to that point and just said, actually, this is not, this is not for us? Yeah, on quite a few projects, actually. The Eames project would have been my dream project um, and it ended up being squished down to kind of a couple of products, um, a set of notebooks and a set of um, kind of postcards, um, like a play kind of postcard set. But originally we'd kind of um, wanted to do some prints and stuff for them as well. Um, And most of these exhibitions, you work with the estate of whoever's exhibition is. So the Eames estate had sent us um, a palette of colours and in my head they were the most un palette of colours I'd ever seen and it just the, the conversation just got too complicated um, and so we ended up not doing the prints that didn't work we had to kind of say no and you know that's pretty like gut-wrenching you know when it's when you're working with the Eames estate and you're just like well I can't do this anymore um, 
so yeah, they don't always work. But I think I think that's about integrity, isn't it? I think that's about like not wanting to put something out that you're not happy with. And it's it's having the confidence, and the, the sort of I suppose that there's the other aspect of it that's the the, the stability, like the financial stability yeah. to to turn things down. Yeah. Um, and it, it it's a privileged position to be in, but it's the way that you maintain that integrity. I think so, yeah. And they are super difficult decisions to make, you know, because obviously you're turning down not just money, but, like, you're also turning down this kind of, um, you know, the, the reputation that you get from working with somewhere like that. And But, yeah, I just... I'm very much about kind of, like, making, you know, like, that kind of feeling in your heart about how a project feels. And if it if it doesn't feel right, if it doesn't feel like it's the way that you want it to be, I, I, yeah, I just don't think it's worth pursuing, or it's rarely worth pursuing. <laughs> um, so I want to move on to talk about one of your itches. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, uh, the Make Bank... Um, so, so it launched at Dundee Design Festival in May. Um, and for, I'm not sure how many people listening will, will know exactly what it is. So could you explain, I suppose, where the where the, the motivation came from and what the MakeBank is? Okay. Um, so MakeBank is a social project which is aiming to kind of tackle creative poverty in UK schools. And it came about because, like, I love what I do at Tom Pigeon and I am in a very privileged position um, but I am also really aware that what we produce is relatively expensive and for a relatively affluent sector of society. And socially, that doesn't sit super comfortably with me. And so we want, I wanted to build... I want, actually started looking for um, some projects that were already existing that we could kind of align ourselves with or kind of profit, you know, give some profit to or support in some way. And this issue of creative poverty came up in a lot of my research. So this idea that kids are dropping out of subjects at like National 5, GCSE level, A level, um, because they don't have the materials um, that they need to complete their coursework. So they're, they're, you know, poverty, kids that are living in poverty, who's, you know, potentially their parents are already using food banks, that kind of thing, you know, they're living on the poverty line, below the poverty line. And the materials that they need don't exist in their houses, you know, or, and also to um, the kind of second aspect of that is that they don't understand the kind of wealth of opportunity that exists within the creative industries. They don't see it as a, as a go-to industry to make money, you know, or to have a proper career. Um, and I couldn't find anybody else that was kind of looking at that issue or dealing with the issue. Um, so I just decided to set something up myself. So that's where the Make Bank came from. Um, and what we physically what we do is we provide kits for kids who maybe would drop out of a subject, like an art and design subject, um, because of poverty. Um, and we will provide them the materials that they need to do that coursework. Um, and then online, we've got a resource of like stories that kind of tell people I guess that kind of kids can access and that teachers can access that give kids an understanding of the wealth of opportunity that's in the industry, all the jobs that exist um, and how to get there, the flexibility of how to get into those jobs. It's not just a, you have to have money and go to university and, you know, there are lots and lots of ways into the industry. And so there's there's a few facets beyond the... Um, 
beyond the packs that you can essentially i mean i I don't know, do you describe it as donating or paying it forward? Or Yeah, I mean, sort of... yeah, either really. I guess, you know, like you can go you can go online and you can donate a pack and that £20 that you donate or however much you want to give, um, a, a pack costs £20 for us to create and send out to a pupil. So that £20 goes directly towards funding a pupil that might want to pursue a creative career. Um, yeah, so paying it forward. Yeah, that, it's, that, it's that concept. Hmm. Yeah. And it's... You're also brought on board, like, um, or had support from loads of amazing designers um, who've, I mean, contributed their time and their skills, mm. um, but also prints that are then for sale. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of it's a lot of what I'm. I guess what we're trying to do is rally the industry a little bit to kind of, um, you know, because whilst teachers are pushed you know teachers are really pushed and you know they're they're working with limited budgets very tight curriculums um and i guess what i want to kind of do is kind of get as many people within the creative industries to kind of stand up and say actually this is this is an issue and here are the different ways that we can help you know so yeah we've had amazing like web developers and uh, da in glasgow um did all our branding for us and um you know copywriters and social media people and all that kind of thing contributing so it's I guess it's a little bit about I think everybody that I've spoken to has seen it as an issue seen it as something that they can help with in some way whether that be financially or through their expertise or by designing a print that we can sell or by sharing their story um, and all of those things are like really valuable you know that kind of that that those donations are really valuable to the project yeah, because I think you're when you're in that that I mean situation at, at school and you're making like life potentially life changing decisions mm. on on what you do afterwards. Um, I mean, it's difficult to know what's what's out there. It's difficult for teachers to have a full view of yeah. the entire world and all the opportunities that are there. It's difficult for parents to do that as well. I mean, yeah. they, you live your life by the experiences you have, yeah. so often creative careers just aren't seen as a viable option or a financially lucrative yeah. option. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's still that kind of misconception. I hear a lot of kind of stories of like guidance teachers or um, careers advisors in school telling kids not to study creative subjects because what are the, what kind of job are you going to get? You'll be an art teacher or a poor artist. You know, like, and, you know, and that's a genuine, they have been genuine kinds of comments that I've heard kids say, you know, and... That's, I mean, it's understandable. You know, there's there's a there's a need for education, I guess, of of teachers. You know, and and you know to kind of make people understand what exists in the industry. You know, I I don't know what still exists in the industry. You know, people come to me with their stories. And I'm like, what? That's a job. <laughs> you know, and and it's ever changing as well. You know, especially with technology and stuff. The kind of changes in jobs in the industry are just constant. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many jobs that just, I mean, five, yeah, even five years ago, yeah. less than 10 years ago, those industries didn't exist. Yeah. Like social media experts, yeah. I mean, as much as that's a horrible term, they did not exist. No, exactly. Um, yeah. And I mean, that is an industry that as quickly as it has seen a rise could see a complete fall yeah. again. Yeah. And it's it's about looking at those future trends and saying where will the jobs be in yeah. five ten years time will yeah. they be in the the program and the code and the design the ux of software will we move more into print well like yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's looking at 
I mean, across all the industries, like the automotive industry is going to see massive change. Yeah. Um, like the automation of jobs is going to change. And it's, <clears throat> I don't know how you get that information to the people who are helping these young people make the decisions. No. And it's, yeah, it's really difficult because, you know, us already working in the creative industries don't necessarily know what that future is going to be. And teachers certainly don't have the time to kind of be investigating that whilst also trying to kind of tight, teach to a very tight curriculum. Um, and so, yeah, I guess, you know, who stands in and does that, you know? So I guess like the, the stories aspect of the Make Bank is, is important for that, you know, and right now it's a very small resource, but over time, hopefully, you know, somebody will be able to come on and click on animator or whatever and get 20 stories about how these 20 creatives have become animators. And every story will be completely different. Um, and I think that that, just that kind of like inspiring that next generation. And also just the diversity of like the creative industries is, you know, kind of needs to be addressed and looked at. And hopefully by enabling some kids from lower, um, like lower economic kind of regions and backgrounds to kind of enter the industry and, you know, and, and diversity across race and gender, you know, it's a it's a huge issue. I'm not I'm not planning on trying to tackle all of it, but you know, hopefully, some aspects of the Make Bank will allow kids to, from all backgrounds to recognise that there's a place for them if they can see themselves in the industry. Yeah, and like design and creativity should not ever be um, subjects or areas that are only accessed by white privilege yeah but um, it, i mean but we are an industry full of white privilege you know and absolutely. that's that's a really sad thing you know it shouldn't it shouldn't be that you know and yeah i don't know how i don't know how you tackle that wholeheartedly I mean, no and but, i think it i mean it's an issue across i mean especially in in dundee across the whole creative community that people are are talking about it are, are looking to address it like i yeah. know creative dundee are doing some some yeah. great work trying to to do that but there's there's a massive leap for us to make to, yeah. to get there yeah. um, and we're not anywhere close. Yeah, it's difficult, but the good thing is it's been talked about and it's been talked about so much more like now yeah. than than maybe even a year ago. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of lack of diversity in the creative industries, you know, if you Google it, there are loads of really, really interesting, insightful bits of information out there, you know, and, 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 and amazing people doing amazing things to try and change it. But I think that yeah, that is that it is that kind of rally in the industry, you know, because it'll be the industry that'll change it. Can't come from the teachers. Mm. And so, looking forward to like in terms of design education, um, what would you like to see change or happen or um, yeah, going forward? Just in the, uh, how would you like to envision the future of design <laughs> education? It's a big question. It is a big question. I think I think the courses in schools, I think the curriculum in school needs to be way more industry relevant. You know, I think that um, the my daughter's going through was just on her higher art, you know, and it's super prescriptive. You know, it's like you must draw an eye, then draw the nose, you know, and then, you know, it's like a real kind of um, it's very traditional still, you know, and even the design kind of curriculum is, is still very traditional. And it's also hugely um weighted towards the teacher's expertise so a lot of art teachers are women and so a lot of art departments um in the design kind of side of things 
do jewellery or textiles. And as a result of that, there are virtually no boys doing higher art, you know, or A-level art. Actually, the A-level is better because there's a much broader curriculum in, in England. But in Scotland, you know, there's, um, yeah, I mean, there, there were no boys in, in my daughter's um, art higher class. And that's been that's been pretty much the case across every Scottish teacher that I've spoken to. And, yeah, so how do, how do you deal with that? You know, how do you deal with with um, that kind of really, I don't know, it, it just needs a big shake up but I don't know how you do that unless you kind of I mean that then you get into politics (laughs) and like how you know should we as an industry be going and speaking to like you know the people at the SQA who are creating the curriculums and telling them it's not relevant to you know what these kids need to know to go into the industry don't know yeah or (laughs) or maybe it comes from higher up than that if we had a a policy yeah um like say a scottish design policy that encompassed education that said well actually we're not meeting these these standards and this is what we should be aiming for and then that i suppose it's about creating that motivation to to change and if there isn't that motivation to change at the moment then how do we create that yeah um yeah it's difficult you know kids kids are getting switched off doing art from a very young age because they kind of get to 10 11 12 top at primary school and there's a kid in their class that's draw that you know that draws really well so therefore that the kid that can't draw as well as that one thinks oh i'm rubbish at art and then they 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 lose faith in the system you know they lose faith in that subject they're not interested they don't want to put themselves out there but we know that as creatives in the industry it's not all about being able to draw a nice horse or something (laughs) you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you know that's what kids still see it as being and it shouldn't be like that kids should be able to say like oh my god look at that illustrator they draw nothing like what we have to draw like in school you know or look at this person i don't know doing like user experience you know like ux design or something and oh yeah for draws boxes yeah exactly <laughs> And you probably don't even have to draw because you do it on the computer. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, so I guess there's that kind of... Kids need to understand that that, that drawing a good horse is not being a good artist, <laughs> basically. That, I'm de- that's definitely the quote for the episode. <laughs> <laughs> there's always a girl in your class that could draw, draw really good horses, isn't there? <laughs> but so, I mean, in terms of, of your future and... Tom Pigeon and Make Bank. What I mean, what what excites you about the future? Um, so right now, I am really excited about what I'm doing with Make Bank, and and that kind of social aspect of my practice is really, yeah, is really interesting to me. And so I would like I would like to kind of shift some of my focus on a you know kind of week to week basis um, to working more towards that. But I'm also very aware and, you know, and I love what I do at Tom Pigeon. Um, so, you know, that's about kind of maintaining the business, growing, you know, what we do, exploring new products. You know, I'd like to do more kind of maybe one-off art pieces, installation-y kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I think just, I don't know, just keeping it interesting, not getting stuck in one kind of rut, you know, like I don't ever plan to for Tom Pigeon not to exist. Well, certainly not right at the moment. Um you know, so it's just it's about keeping it interesting and kind of exploring new avenues creatively, 
and I guess socially. Cool. Um, and before we finish up, uh, is there anything, anything that you could recommend that you've watched, read, listened to recently? Well, I'm listening to a podcast just now called um, How to Fail. Okay, that's which um, is quite good. I've only started. I've only listened to a few of them, and they are very much kind of just nice general chit chat about. So it's not design focused. It's just it's not. It's a, so there's loads of people like you know um, celebs and you know like the writer Fleabag I listened to recently, and um, yeah, just lots of different people, um, artists, writers, um, and it's it's really just based around how you succeed from your failures, how you come out of it, fa- how you treat failure and how you get something positive out of it. I'm going to have to ask you now, how how do you deal with failure? <laughs> uh, I think I'm quite philosophical about it. I kind of do think that like, I don't think I've ever had any like major failures, you know? So I guess like, or maybe I don't perceive them as, maybe somebody else would perceive them as major failures. I don't know. I guess you just, I guess you learn from those mistakes or failures and you yeah I guess you just kind of uh, yeah I don't know not implement strategies sounds a bit highfalutin but um no but I, I think that there's something in that I was having a chat the other day about, about failure and you were talking about how you can plan like or you can create room in your process to fail yeah um, and you can allow it, like as you iterate and as you prototype and as you create things, it's it's fine to fail. Yeah. As long as you yeah. have that bigger vision and the direction that you're going in. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, I think within the de- de- the design process, we're, we're all quite used to failing at certain bits. So, you know, or, you know, the, some bits of the process fall away. It's not doesn't necessarily feel like a failure. That's just about the process of designing, and maybe that's quite easy to kind of implementing life stuff you know where you can say well that didn't work or you know that was a total disaster but here's how i'm going to move on from it hmm. yeah you know yeah like design yeah designing your way out of failure <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. um so if anyone wants to um contribute to make bank whether that's financially by buying a pack or um buying a print or even contributing their story, where do they do that? Um, so there's a website which is um, themakebank.org.uk. So you could go on there and everything is on there. So just, yeah, give us a shout. And if they want to find anything about Tom Pigeon? TomPigeon.com. Oh, thanks very much. <laughs> no worries. So that was Kirsty. Um, yeah. Just phenomenal she's got a great story um yeah it's one of those episodes where it just talks brilliantly about everything that she does um yeah it made my life very easy in that episode um but yeah thanks to her for coming on and, and doing the episode and um yeah telling the story of make bank which i think um is such an amazing project that, that hopefully we can spread this um a little bit further um, and if anyone out there listening thinks i can help um even if it's just buying a pack or um helping in any way um with the make bank go to the makebank.org.uk and and help out there um so yeah um next week uh, we're gonna have jamie steen who's a graphic designer that i mentioned in the introduction um but yeah before then if you want 
to keep up to date. Um, little sneak peeks, things that are going on. Um, yeah, it's at CCC Dundee on Twitter and on Instagram. And it's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee. Um, yeah, and you can subscribe on all good podcasting platforms. You can probably even ask those like smart speaker things for creative chit chat and it'll know what you mean. Technology. It's amazing. Um, but yeah, until next week, that's it. Goodbye. <laughs>